0: Hello, I'm Jerry Jogers from the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Iowa. I'd like to speak to you today regarding gait disturbances in the geriatric patients. I have no disclosures to make. I have no financial relationship with any company supporting this educational event. The objectives today are to identify the relationship between gait disorders and falls, to list common medical conditions associated with gait disorders, to discuss clinical approaches to evaluating gait imbalance, to demonstrate various gait abnormalities, and finally to describe interventions used to prevent falls in the context of gait disorders. I'd like to begin with a case. This is a patient who's 75 years old, a male patient with a history of polymyalgia rheumatica, who has been treated with prednisone for the last two years. He walks into the office today unaided and without any noticeable gait abnormality, but he reports to you he's had some balance problems. His medications include hydrochlorothiazide, liburide, and aspirin. What is his risk of falling in the next year? we would like you to write down on a piece of paper what percent risk he would have in falling the next year. And we'll go back to what your answer was. A few fall facts. Close to 14,000 persons 65 and older die from falls each year. Uh, this particular statistic was from 2003. million have been treated in emergency departments for non-fatal injuries from falls. Falls cause the majority of hip fractures and multifactorial interventions to prevent falls are effective, reducing fall rate 12 falls per 100 person months or 30 to 40 percent. This is a list of common causes of falls in older persons. Uh, This is based on 3600 reported falls. We see at the top of the list are accidents and environmental related causes at 31 percent. The second most common cause of falls is gait and balance disorders which is uh, the subject of uh, today's presentation. Dizziness and vertigo is listed there and drop attacks. Drop attacks are the loss of postural control where a person ends up on the floor usually related to neck movements. The person is unable to move after they get on the floor until they're rebooted uh, by pushing on their uh, legs uh, to stimulate their postural reflexes to get up and move. This particular cause of falls seems to be reported much more commonly uh, in the UK than it's in the American literature. Uh, also listed here as confusion, postural hypotension, so the need to check orthostatic blood pressures is very important in that falling patient. Visual disorders are also listed. Syncope can lead to falls, and then many other causes including arthritis, drugs, and alcohol. We're not talking from falls from high places. Uh, a fall may just occur from tripping off a curb or tripping over a throw rug that's on the floor. Falling in patients 65 and older have a pretest probability in one year of 27%. So that individual that walks into your office at 65 and older, right off the top, uh, knowing his age or her age, there's a 27% that that person will fall in the next year. Findings that would bring annual risk of falls to 50% include a faller in the past year uh, that increases the likelihood ratio between 2.3 and 2.8. A Fall in the past month increases the likelihood ratio of another fall uh, to 3.8. Clinically detected abnormality of gait or balance increases the likelihood ratio again by about 2. So are there guidelines related to when I should be evaluating someone for gait and balance? And of course there's always guidelines these days. The American and British Geriatric Society have guidelines for prevention of falls in older adults and gait and balance deficits should be evaluated in patients reporting a single fall. Persons who screen positive for falls or have fall risk should be evaluated for gait and balance as part of a multifactorial uh, fall risk assessment. What goes in to that assessment? Well, a fall risk assessment should include, include a very thorough evaluation of medications. These uh, can lead to falls. Uh, diuretics, anything that acts in the brain uh, such as psychotropic medicines or anxiolytics may predispose a person to falls. We need to assess basic and instrumental activities of daily living, measure orthostatic blood pressures, assess vision, check cognitive status and do a neurologic evaluation. Checking the heart and the heart rhythm would be very important, as well as evaluating uh, environmental hazards. Of course, when the patient is presenting in the office, we're not in the home and we cannot assess all the environmental hazards, but we can assess the environmental hazards they bring with them, such as footwear. We should also evaluate a person's feet. Uh, then, uh, finally, and the topic of today, is to evaluate gait and balance. There are also quality indicators for gait impairment in the ACOVE guidelines, which is assessing care of vulnerable elder, elderly, and this is from the third edition of these guidelines. Gait and balance evaluation should be done within three months of the onset of walking balance or mobility problems. Assisted device evaluation within three months of decreased balance, proprioception, or excessive postural sway should be performed. Other quality indicators include an exercise program in the last six months or within three months a report a problem with gait balance, strength, or endurance. Related quality indicators for gait impairment would be included in evaluation and management of falls. Abnormal gait is a risk factor for falls, as we have already stated. It also is a risk factor for immobility, uh, dementia, loss of independence, and death. The risk factor of death, the risk for death or institutionalization in the next five years has a hazard ratio of greater than two in the presence of uh, a gait abnormality. Persons with severe uh, to moderate abnormalities have a hazard ratio of uh, institutionalization or death uh, at the level of three if they present with a gait abnormality. We're not talking about these types of gates or this type of gates. I can hear you laughing in the audience right now. That usually never gets a laugh when I present this to medical students. Some key points regarding gait disorders. First of all, gait disorders are very common, and as we've already stated, they're related to functional decline. The cause is usually multifactorial, and common contributors to gait disorders in primary care include pain, a person may report stiffness, dizziness, numbness, weakness, or a sensation of abnormal movement. Again, the individual in the case that we presented came in thinking that he had a gait abnormality or balance problem. Some of the common conditions that are related to the complaints listed above may be degenerative joint disease, A person may have an acquired musculoskeletal deformity, they may be suffering from claudication, have had a stroke in the past, or have postural hypertension. There may be impairments following orthopedic surgery. Someone may have just had a hip replaced and now they're recovering from that and that is contributing to the gait disorder. Some conditions that may be seen in referred populations such as a neurologist be frontal gait disorders, such things as normal pressure hydrocephalus, when an individual may have some cognitive impairment, urinary incontinence, and a gait problem where they're having difficulty picking their feet up off the ground, like a velcro gait. Cerebral vascular disease processes may also be a presenting condition in a referred population. Sensory disorders such as vestibular or visual problems, myelopathies, Parkinsonism, or cerebrovascular disease. Evaluation should consist of a detailed physical and functional performance evaluation and interventions may be medical, surgical and exercise is usually in order when we're dealing with a gait or balance problem. There still may be residual impairment uh, often after these interventions are uh, undertaken. Here are some other gates. This is Jean-Claude and Christo's gates in uh, Central Park. That was several years ago. Some epidemiology regarding gait impairment. 20% of non-institutionalized older patients and older elders will be suffering from a gait impairment. So this is usually a high yield uh, proposition when we're seeing elderly patients in the office asking about gait abnormalities. Over 50 percent of adults 85 and older will have a gait abnormality. There are some gait related changes related to age such as decreased speed. This may become apparent uh, between 75 and 80 years of age. Majority of gait disorders, however, are connected with an underlying disease. Typically three or more chronic uh, conditions will lead to gait disorders. Strokes, hip fractures, and cancers are also related to gait impairment. Further epidemiology regarding gait disorders uh, shows that the incidence of uh, new uh, gait disorders is 169 per 1,000 person-years. Uh, The male to female ratio is 1, and the prevalence is up to 35% in all of elders, and it peaks in the 80 to 84 years of age group. Neurologic gait disorders are more common in the older patients, the 85 and older group, consisting of almost 16% of the total gait disorders. And this is related to stroke, which increases the hazard ratio to 2.6, and hypertension, which also almost doubles uh, the hazard ratio at 1.9. Non-neurologic gates related to arthritis which increases the ratio, uh, the hazard ratio to 3, peak in the 80 to 84 year old age group and consist of almost 21 percent of the gait disorders. This is just to remind me that uh, gait isn't uh, just like walking um, similar to a robot Uh, putting one leg in front of the other. There's a lot more to gait uh, than just moving the legs. There's central processing that goes on and many other actions in the body other than leg movement contribute to gait. When we look at a potential essential gait disorder, something that would come on with aging by itself, this has been reported in the past and has been described as a decreased stride length with aging a broader base gait with aging. This is seen more commonly in the male population. There may be reduced arm swing, more of a stoop posture, and decreased flexion of the hips and knees. There may be uh, demonstrated stiffness in turning and difficulty with initiating steps. However, I believe as a geriatrician uh, that there isn't such a thing as an essential gait disorder that usually there is an underlying disease process that still hasn't been diagnosed leading to the gait abnormality that's seen. One of the ways to look at gait disorders is to assess them by sensory motor level. If we look at the lower, lower sensory motor level, we should consider proprioception. Uh, what is the vestibular and visual function in an individual? Are there body deformities? Is there pain or focal weakness in one leg or the other? In the middle sensory motor level, is there cerebral ataxia? Is there Parkinsonism, hemiparesis or hemiplegia, or paraplegia or paraparesis? At the higher level, we may see a cautious gait. We see this in mild Alzheimer's disease. The person isn't quite sure how to step out and that reduces the step length uh, and contributes to a slow cautious gait. This can also be seen in cerebral vascular disease as we already mentioned in normal pressure hydrocephalus where an individual has difficulty ripping their foot off the floor or that velcro gait abnormal gaits as neurologic and non-neurologic is again a good way to approach uh, what kind of gait you're dealing with. There's also combined uh, gait abnormalities. In neurologic gait an individual may present with an unsteadiness of gait, There's swaying or loss of balance. Uh, Ataxia may be demonstrated in cerebellar gaits this may be associated with a wide base gait and an intention tremor. Neuropathic neurologic gaits would be seen with foot drops that a person can't dorsiflex the foot properly and they may catch their toe and fall because of that. There may be sensory impairment related to uh, problems with B12 deficiencies or thyroid disease and there may be absent reflexes on neurologic exam. Frontal neurologic gaits are associated with short steps and a wide base, and difficulty with uh, lifting feet. Again, this may be related to cognitive disorders such as Alzheimer's or cerebrovascular disease. Other neurologic gates to consider is Parkinson's disease with on block turning. There may be a hemipyretic gait and a person can't properly lift their leg because of weakness of uh, the quadriceps muscle and they have to circumduct their leg around their step. we will demonstrate this a little bit later in the talk today. Spastic gait may also occur. We need to remember when someone does have reduced strength in the lower extremity, the adductors seem to remain stronger than the abductors. So this may lead to the leg crossing the midline. So a person has a scissoring gait, which makes it very difficult to walk if one leg is crossing the other uh, as you're attempting to initiate a step. Non-neurologic gates, like demonstrated in this picture of the swollen knee uh, in the left leg here uh, can be caused by uh, arthritic problems. Uh, An individual may have uh, cardiac disease or chronic lung disease which reduces their exercise capacity. It slows them down. Uh, They have a slower gait. They may not be able to lift their feet as high because of reduced uh, energy and endurance. This may lead to a trip and a fall. Peripheral vascular disease, contributing to claudication, reduces uh, the endurance and the ability to walk. Uh, Sustained a difference because of lack of blood supply to the leg. This may lead to pain, Uh, disequilibrium uh, or imbalance because of pain on one side leading to a fall. And then there sure can be a lot of combined gait disorders including neurologic and non-neurologic problems in an elderly population. Impairment of gait and balance findings that would predict fall in one year would include a self-report of mobility problems this would be consistent with the case that we uh, listed uh, to begin uh, the presentation today. This would almost double the likelihood ratio. So the individual complaining of a gait or a balance problem that's 65 and older uh, already with a pretest probability of 27% is close to a 50% chance of falling in the next year. And this would require some interventions uh, on your part. Inability to perform uh, tandem stance uh, for 10 seconds or inability to perform tandem walk uh, for 2 meters increases the likelihood ratio as well. And we will demonstrate uh, these particular tasks. Requiring 13 seconds or greater to walk 10 meters increases uh, the likelihood ratio uh, as well of a fall in the next year. I would like uh, to demonstrate some of the following uh, testing uh, for gait and balance. This will include static balance, dynamic balance, walking velocity, and then I'd like also to demonstrate some specific gait abnormalities. So demonstrating uh side-by-side stance, is just having people put their feet together and stand there, and if they're not wobbly doing that, then you can do semi-tandem, and if they're not wobbly doing that, you can do tandem stance, and someone should be able to stand there for ten seconds without wobbling, and this would be a good screen uh, for, uh, stability. And then another thing that can be done is just a five second one leg stand. Just have them go up on either leg and stand there for five seconds. If they can stand there for five seconds without putting the other foot down, that individual is at less risk of falls than the person who can't stand there for five seconds. And they can choose either leg to do that. We can increase the task by having them close their eyes. I'm not going to do that standing up here in the table close my eyes because I don't want to fall, uh, but that reduces one of the sensory inputs that's needed for balance. Okay? And you want to be standing right next to your patient when you do these techniques. As we demonstrated, side-by-side testing uh, in stands is one of the ways to check balance doing a semi-tandem stance is another way and again I would recommend not going directly to a tandem stance and someone who may be wobbly to start out and try to have them stand there for 10 seconds because you may have a fall occurring in your office so starting out with side-by-side stance and progressing to tandem stance is the best way to assess uh, balance in someone who's not steady using one leg balance uh, for five seconds uh, will help uh, predict if someone will have an injurious fall uh, in the next year. Individuals can perform this maneuver less likely to fall and especially unlikely to fall and have an injury. One leg balance with eyes closed increases the the difficulty of the task, uh, uh, removing uh, visual input uh, which is needed uh, for a lot of people to maintain their balance they're relying then on just the proprioception they have in their ear function to maintain their balance. The dynamic balances that we've demonstrated are functional reach. Uh, This is again the inability to reach more than uh, five uh, inches uh, with setting the the center of balance off uh, and seeing if they can maintain uh, their balance. Sternal nudge is a way to check dynamic balance as well to see if someone has good writing reflexes. This would be particularly important to check in people with Parkinsonism symptoms uh, because uh, their balance problems will include uh, difficulty with maintaining uh, their center of balance. Limits of stability testing uh, can uh, use a uh, forced uh, platform uh, and a computer and this is more of a research tool uh, the Wii uh, instruments that are out there uh, used as gaming tools uh, can check balance as well. And there is one particular uh, game on Wii where you try to lead to the sides and see how far you can lean to the sides and still maintain your balance. And I think in the future we may see this being introduced into clinical settings uh, to check individuals' balance. One of the ways to check someone's gait is to take them out and walk them in the snow. I really don't recommend this. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, a way to uh, precipitate falls, but I'd just like to use this example to demonstrate what we should be looking at uh, when we're watching someone walk. Uh, We see in this particular demonstration uh, the uh, base of the gate, which seems to be a normal base. It's not wide. It's not narrow. Uh, One foot isn't crossing over the other as this person steps. We also see that the stride stride length uh, is normal, that one foot goes all the way in front of the other. We do see a little toe lag here, again as the toe is dragged in the snow. Of course, we don't know how high the snow is and if this is a problem with the foot drop that this person has, but we see it's fairly symmetrical from side to side, that there's the same amount of toe lag or hitting the snow here before the the foot is placed down in the snow. These are the type of things that you need to observe when you're watching your patients walk uh, in the office setting. Again, if they're out walking in the snows, I would recommend uh, tracks uh, so they're not sliding on uh, the ice or uh, tripping in the snow. Walking velocity is another thing that should be considered Uh, when we're evaluating someone for gait and balance. Gait speeds decline at a rate of 12 to 16 percent per decade after age 60. Slower walkers considered those that can't walk uh, 0.6 meters uh, or greater per second. And faster unimpaired walkers are defined as 1 meter per second or greater. Timed walking tasks can be used in the office. This is something that we use in the geriatric assessment clinic, asking someone to walk at their usual uh, speed down the hallway as they're actually being timed by the nursing assistant. Uh, walking a speed reserve can be assessed by asking someone to walk as quickly as possible. Research shows that probably selected gait velocity is the best in predicting how well a patient will do as far as predicting longevity uh, and predicting falls. The six meter walk which is part of the get, get up and go test is another way to evaluate walking in the office. Having someone push up off the chair, walk out three meters, and then walk back and sit down again. they should be able to perform this usually in less than 10 seconds. If it takes them 14 or more seconds, especially if it takes them 20 or more seconds, this may be a reason for a physical therapy evaluation of this individual. This gives us a, a composite uh, measure of how a person feels about their walking as well as their capability of walking. It assesses their comfort in walking and walking uh, quickly. A interesting uh, study was just recently published in JAMA uh, regarding gait speed and survival. Uh, This was a pooled analysis of nine cohort studies. This included over 34,000 community-dwelling adults. Their mean age was 73.5 years, and they were followed for 6 to 21 years. The mean gait speed of this uh, cohort was 0.92 meters per second. So in general they had normal walking speed. It was found that the overall survival of this group for five years was 85 percent and for 10 year survival around 60 percent. The survival increased across the full range of gait speeds. The faster you walked the more likely you were to survive 5 and 10 years. At age 75 years, the 10-year survival in men ranged from 19 percent in the lowest walking speeds up to 87 percent in the highest walking speeds and in women it ranged from 35 to 91 percent. Predicted survival based on age, gender, and gait speed is as accurate as age gender plus the use of mobility aids and self-reported function. It's also as accurate as number of chronic conditions, smoking history, blood pressure, body mass index and number of hospitalizations. So what are some of the clinical implications of gait speed? We can identify patients who are likely to live five to ten years. This may help us in making judgments if a particular preventive intervention would be appropriate or not for this patient. It predicts early mortality especially in individuals that have the gait speed of less than 0.6 meters a second. It can characterize overall health. Decline may be an indicator of health problems in individuals that you have more than one data point regarding their gait speed. They were walking well a couple months ago and walking fast but now they're not walking quite as fast. It may be time for interventions regarding their congestive failure or their COPD or maybe they just have an ingrown toenail that needs to be treated. We may stratify risk for surgery and chemotherapy uh, with knowing what a person's gait speed is, and the use of gait speeds can be implemented quite easily in a practice setting. This is uh, the graph of men and women, uh, their survival in mean years related to their age uh, and their gait speed, all the way from 1.6 meters per second down to 0.2 meters per second and we see in males at age 70 uh, a gait speed of 1.6 meters per second would predict that that individual be around for 25 years. If they have a very low gait speed, uh, here at 0.2 meters per second, their survival is around five to six years. Again, looking at women age 70 years of age with higher gait speeds, we're looking at 30 to 25 years of survival. At lower gait speeds, 10 to 15 years of survival. Now I would like to demonstrate some of the specific gait disorders that you may encounter in the practice setting. So now I'd like to demonstrate some of the specific gait abnormalities. First we'll talk about uh, circumduction. And that's where the outward swinging of the leg needs to occur because the quadriceps is weak and the knee can't be bent. I know this is a really abnormal patient who has a shifting deficit from side to side. Equinovarus is Excessive plantar flexion and inversion of the ankle. Festination is the acceleration of the gait. Now, Parkinson's patient, their center of gravity is here and they're trying to catch up. They go faster and faster and faster until they shoot off the table. Well, festination of gait. so the person catches their toe, and again that can lead to a fall. Foot slap, early frequent audible foot problem where you overstep to compensate for the foot drop. This is a person you can hear coming into your office. extension of the knee, almost like goose stepping, propulsion, falling forward, retropulsion falling backwards. This is where you can do a shoulder tug and if the person falls back on you, you know you have retropulsion. You can push on the back, help them fall forward. I highly recommend you stand very close to the person so you don't lose them on the floor. If you get them down too low, ease them to the floor rather than hurting yourself. And tell the person before you do these procedures that you will not let them fall so they have confidence in what you're doing. Scissoring, hip abduction, such that you cross the midline. It's very hard to walk like that. So it's where the adductors remain stronger than the abductors and you scissor across the center of balance, or center of stance. Step excessive hip flexion, knee extension, and foot lift. Trendellinbergate is shifting over the weak side. What happens is the left glutes are weak. You can't stabilize the pelvis, you fall down and you can't clear this leg. So you have to lean over to the side and then circumduct the leg. If the side weak, they would lean this way with the tridelomer gait. Turn on block, something we see with Parkinson's disease. They have the smooth posture and the whole body turns as one. To summarize, uh, we looked at uh, abnormalities of gait including circumduction, equinoverus festination of gait, foot drop, foot slap, that's an association of a foot drop with an audible uh, flap of the uh, foot on the floor with walking, genu recurvatum, propulsion and retropulsion, that can evaluate, be evaluated with sternal nudge or uh, a sternal shove, uh, scissoring of the gait, where the leg crosses the midline, and a stepage gait, which is an exaggeration of hip flexion, knee extension, and foot lift. We also demonstrate a Trendelenburg gait from weakness on one side and the unblock, unblock gait, uh, which is associated with Parkinsonism. Looking at footwear is very important to evaluate a person's uh, strength uh, as well as gait abnormalities. We see in this particular picture uh, this is one of my patients, she was 95 years of age at the time this picture was taken of her shoes and we can see on the right side there is quite a bit of stippling uh, of the sole of the shoe and this is worn away on this side and we see more wear on the right uh, shoe than we do on the left and indeed she had mild foot drop on the right side. Uh, She was sent for physical therapy and was strengthening exercises. uh, We helped reduce uh, her weakness and maybe we prevented a fall uh, where she may have caught her foot because she was not lifting it high enough uh, such as being uh, caught on a throw rug or an uneven uh, part of a walking surface. So what are the interventions? We need to treat underlying diseases. Again, if a person has severe osteoarthritis of the hip, a hip replacement would be in order. Person with normal pressure hydrocephalus shunting would be in order. The most common symptom of normal pressure hydrocephalus that would respond to shunting is the gait abnormality. We may see some uh, plateauing of the cognitive disorder or the urinary incontinence with shunning, we may see improvement with gait disorder with shunning. Physical therapy is also appropriate uh, when intervening to increase a person's uh, strength and uh, ultimately to increase their endurance. Well-fitted shoes are very important. There should be a low heel so more foot is in contact with the walking surface. A thin firm sole is very important too to allow a person to feel uh, proprioception uh, and pressure against their, their shoe. A very thick sole would reduce that uh, proprioceptive uh, input. And then having a high fixed uh, heel collar to support the, the ankle is important as well. Walking in flip-flops is not a good idea because there is no uh, support of the ankle and this can uh, uh, increase the risk of a fall. I had one particular patient with diabetes uh, who reported that he had no trouble walking at home because he took his shoes off when he was walking inside but when he put his uh, shoes on walking outside uh, he had a, a sense of imbalance and I think this was related to putting something between him and the walking surface that he was not receiving proprioception through his feet because of his peripheral neuropathy related to his diabetes. Now I didn't recommend that to that person that he should walk barefoot outside but I did recommend a thinner sole to issue so that he would be more likely to receive proprioceptive input uh, to stabilize his balance. Mobility aids are also important uh, in Uh, preventing falls in people that are having uh, difficulty with balance and I would like to uh, demonstrate for you uh, the proper fitting of canes and go over the use of some of uh, these devices. Furniture surfing is also something patients will use in their homes. They go from one surface to another. I think that it has been shown that furniture surfing can prevent falls We want to make sure our patients are surfing from fixed furniture rather than furniture on wheels, uh, such as a wheelchair uh, that might be there that they're pushing on and lose contact with it as it slides away from them. He can no longer at age 98. This is a painting by Francisco Goya demonstrating an individual using two assisted devices again on walking with four points on the ground and we will demonstrate the use of these assisted devices now. Now just a word about measuring of canes. Uh, Single prong cane walkers all measured the same way you just have the person stand, with the cane by their side, standing straight up. The crease of the wrist should come to the top of the cane, so that when they place their hand on the top of the cane, the elbow bent at about 30 degrees, making sure the person uses the cane on the good side, so if the left leg is a problem, the cane would go out, and the left leg goes up, proper use of the cane. And again, a walker would be measured the same way, help them stand inside the walker. The crease of the wrist should come to the top of the cane or the walker. So when they put their hand up on the handle, the elbow is bent about 30 degrees. A single prong cane is a good assisted device, and as we demonstrated, it needs to be measured Uh, for an individual patient. An adjustable cane would be a good instrument to buy that could be adjusted in the office setting. single prong cane could be used in someone with a peripheral neuropathy that needs sensory input through their arm that they're no longer receiving through their uh, feet. Uh, This will keep a person's center of balance uh, intact, but once they lose center of balance, this really doesn't prevent a person from uh, falling Uh, because you can't apply enough pressure to a single prong cane to keep you upright. An individual that's having uh, more of a strength problem may benefit from a uh, quad cane. Uh, The good things about quad canes is that they don't fall down when you set them down. They stay on the floor unlike a a single prong cane and uh, this could be used uh, in an individual that needs a little bit more support Uh, but yet isn't requiring a walker. This is a hemi walker and can be used in someone who has a paraplegia and can only use one side of the body uh, effectively. A walker, uh, a non-wheeled walker, would be something that may be used in rehabilitation following a hip fracture. Uh, Someone using a uh, a non-wheeled walker has to have enough strength to lift this up and place it forward. Uh, This is measured uh, similarly as a a cane uh, in the the height uh, of the walker. Uh, These walkers can also be fitted uh, with forearm rests in an individual who may not have a good uh, grip strength but may have forearm or upper uh, shoulder strength. Uh, a platform can be built in to the side uh, of the handle of one of these walkers uh, so that the forearm can just be lifted up and down and you don't require grip strength on one side to lift the walker. Or to use a wheeled walker, which is this particular version. A wheeled walker is a good uh, protective uh, uh, instrument and device in someone with Parkinson's disease probably don't want to use a four-wheeled walker that it doesn't have a break in someone with Parkinson's disease because they may be just sent out in space and not be able to stop because of their festination of gait uh, and a wheeled walker would provide them with the stability uh, of being able to push down on the walker and having it stop. I'd like now to return to the case study uh, The patient is at high risk of falls. His pretest probability uh, is at least 25 to 30%, just the fact that he's 65 and older. His likelihood ratio is increased by 2 because he reports a balance problem. And there is additional risk related to being on a diuretic, hydrochlorothiazide. So his post-test probability of a fall in the next year is at least 50%. I'd like you to check back in what you wrote down and see if your uh, educated guess was 50 percent or greater. Does he have osteoporosis related to the prednisone therapy that he's been on for several years? We also need to consider not only is a person at risk of, of falls, but what would be the consequences of a fall? Are they at greater risk of fracture? So we want to make sure that these individuals are on proper calcium, vitamin D, and other preventive uh, measures uh, to make sure that their bone strength is intact. So the bottom line of this presentation is by performing falls assessment, which includes a very thorough evaluation of gait and balance. And if we do this on patients who screen positive for falls, and that's a history of falls, or a report of mobility problems, And if we treat those risk factors for falls, we can reduce the risk of falls by 30 to 40%. Thank you very much for your attention.